0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.
1: Hello, I'm Simon Long, International Editor at The Economist, and this is Money Talks. On Economist Radio. Coming up on today's show, even Warren Buffett makes mistakes.
2: We overpaid for crap and we wrote down 15 billion about it and we misjudged. It.
1: We look at why one of the biggest food companies in the world is in a sticky mess. And financial feminist Sally Korcek on why she completely changed her mind about social impact investing.
0: I've turned on meetings with impact investors. I, you know, if you had. Worked your way into my office when I was running Merrill or Smith Barty and said, You know, I'm here to talk about social impact. I would have said, You know, you're a granola eater, tree hugger. Right. You know, so I was all the way with old Wall Street.
1: First, Kraft Heinz finds itself in a spot of bother. Look in your cupboard and you're bound to find some of its products.
0: Kraft macaroni and
2: cheese!
1: It's a cheesy ceremony. Let's
2: eat and roll on it. Keep Britain Heinz, Dad says...
3: Beans, beans, Heinz. You don't need any more hormones in your house.
0: That's why you chose Kraft Natural Cheese, made with fresh milk without the Cause Oscar Meyer has
1: a way with biology and a Oscar Meyer, the first name in Bologna. How's that? This week the household name announced a huge $15 billion loss. Many buyers of its products may not know that Kraft Heinz is controlled by a very powerful investment fund, 3G Capital. Charlotte Howard, the economist New York bureau chief, joins me to shed some light on this secretive outfit. Hello, Charlotte. Hi, Simon. Um, Before we turn to the the secretive 3G Capital, can you clear something out for, for me? I was told to describe Kraft Heinz as the king of mac and cheese, which doesn't mean very much to me. Why so?
3: In America and in in many places, Kraft is known, among other things, for its um, iconic blue boxes of macaroni and cheese with dried pasta and a little pouch of powder that you add to a pot and throw in some milk. And then you get this creamy, delicious, carbohydrate-rich dish that is beloved by children and my own husband. But they have a huge stable of brands that have been sitting on American pantries and pantries around the world for decades.
1: Well, I already feel humiliated by my ignorance, but I'm going to display even more that. So, who are Three G Capital?
3: Three G Capital is a private equity firm. Its founders are from Brazil. It's mistakenly sometimes called a Brazilian private equity firm. They have offices in New York. They maintain a hedge fund in Brazil, but it's really an international private equity firm with offices based in New York. But they're quite unusual in that they have not a huge portfolio of investments, but rather they have been steadily taking over company after company and combining them into these kind of mega companies. So one example is Kraft Heinz. They also own Burger King now the founders are very large shareholders in AB InBev which is the world's by far the world's biggest brewer which owns for instance Budweiser Miller Stella about 1 in 4 beers around the world is manufactured by AB InBev so you get a sense of these sort of giant giant companies with huge stables of brands
1: So they're very big in in food and drink but but do they have a, a distinctive management ethos?
3: The style that did not invent, but that they're most famous for is zero-based budgeting, which is the idea that at the start of each year, you have to justify your spending. And the result of implementing this strategy across its businesses, combined with making city acquisitions, is they've cut massive amounts of fat from these very large companies and have gone through periods when the companies that they bought were the envy of the industry, particularly Kraft Heinz had this huge surge in its profit margins in the first few years after the merger.
1: Of course, they're not the only investors in Kraft Heinz, are they? Um, Warren Buffett is also a shareholder. Does that give them his seal of approval, as it were? Is he a fan of their style of, of management and running things?
3: It certainly did at the time. Um, but you've heard Warren Buffett express regret to CNBC that he misjudged how much they should have paid.
2: We overpaid for Kraft and we wrote down $15 of that. After buying Kraft, everybody started speculating about things we buy. So the prices of everything went up. And then on top of it, we paid large premiums for it. And and we misjudged it.
3: So you hear there Warren Buffett describing a mistake, which is rare, of course, for him. But the big impairment that they announced last week is because they just thought that these brands were much more valuable than they actually proved to be. And that's based on how valuable they were historically. These are you know, Philadelphia cream cheese, Kool-Aid, Jell-O. These are very famous brands that problem is that consumers just don't really want them anymore. Their appetite for them is falling. And both 3G and Warren Buffett fundamentally misjudged that. After Kraft Heinz began slashing costs aggressively, other companies across the consumer space were pressured to do the same and tried to implement zero-based budgeting in their own way, some with more success than others. But the limits of zero-based budgeting and 3G's strategy have become increasingly clear.
1: And the zero budgeting approach, that is where the manager has to justify every single expense, is not suited to that kind of investment strategy?
3: Well, you know, actually it could be. I I would argue there's debate over this, but I would argue that there's no reason why you can't cut costs if you then reinvest it wisely in thinking about how to sustain growth. The problem comes when you cut costs without thinking strategically about what the future of the company really will look like, or how much money might need to be invested in order to sustain it in the long term. The the type of change that these big companies need to make is not incremental, it's dramatic. And it requires thinking quite boldly and creatively about other types of products that they might offer, whether there are services that they might be able to provide I don't think that there's any company across the consumer space that has really figured this out, particularly in food. It's a bit easier in personal products, in household products. So Unilever has been focusing increasingly not on its food business, for instance, but on, you know, shampoo, creams, various other household and beauty products um, because those are easier – in this new era that I described, packaged food is just a very, very tough business. And if you look across the American landscape of big packaged food makers, Campbell's, PepsiCo, Mondelez, Kellogg, each of them is grappling with how to do this well. No one has a real answer, but it's played out particularly poorly at Kraft Heinz because of them being late to think about how to adapt.
1: Charlotte, thanks very much. I I must dash and see if I can find an easy Mac shop before they close. (laughs)
3: I don't think it'll be very hard. They're everywhere if you look for them.
1: Parents aren't perfect, but then they make us craft mac and cheese and everything's good again. Next, Germany's largest bank, Deutsche, recently had some rare positive news to announce.
3: At Deutsche Bank, we balance the big picture with the details.
1: In 2018, it made its first annual profit for four years. But its critics were quick to point out that it barely made it into the black at all that its return on equity was a tiny 0.4%, and that its stock market capitalization is a tiny fraction of the book value of its assets. The bank's been undergoing painful surgery. Indeed, much of the German private banking industry is struggling. And to discuss them, Malaise, I'm joined by Wendelin von Bredow, the economist, European business and finance correspondent. Hello, Wendelin. Hello, Simon. Firstly, Deutsche Bank's in the news because of its relationship with... Donald Trump, the American president. Can you describe that relationship?
2: President Trump's go-to bank used to be Deutsche Bank for many years. So they have a very close relationship and a very long-standing one. But by 2016, Deutsche Bank started to become really nervous to continue loaning to the president and stopped its business. But by then, and to this day, the bank is still owed millions by the president and is starting to get very nervous about these loans.
1: And looking at the rest of its business, that's not going too well either, is it? It's, it's just made a profit, I see, for the first time in the full year in 2018. But the stock market certainly wasn't very impressed. Its share price is very low. Its return on equity is tiny. Why is it doing so badly?
2: Well, the problem is that Deutsche Bank is still not a viable business when judged by any sensible yardstick, because it's basically unable to make enough profits to generate adequate returns. I mean, it's just too too little. So the question is, can Deutsche Bank survive in its current incarnation? And headlines here in Germany have been dominated now for weeks by the idea of a merger between Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank, which we don't think is such a good idea, but it's certainly an idea that's being mooted at the moment.
1: Yet it seems not so long ago that Deutsche Bank was being talked about as... Europe's contender to be one of the great international investment banks to compete with the the elite of Wall Street, I'm thinking back of 20 years ago when it bought Bankers Trust. What went wrong?
2: That's right. Georgia Bank had huge ambitions, and the investment banking business has become its biggest problem. It never really managed to compete with Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or the big international investment banks, and it became a huge drain on its revenue and its profit. The, the investment bank has dominated the business, and, and the staff were paid a colossal $40 billion euros over the past decade, but it never made it. It never really became the investment bank its bosses were dreaming about.
1: You mentioned that we, the economists, aren't that enthused by the possibility of a merger between Deutsche and Commerz, but what is the sensible logic behind it?
2: Commerzbank is not doing too well, Deutsche Bank is doing very poorly indeed, and maybe merging the two would create a national champion, basically. First of all, the timing would be terrible. Both Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank are cutting costs for all their worth, and Deutsche has shed something like 7,000 staff in the past year. Commerzbank is also slimming down. So a merger would then mean ditching thousands more, which, which would be politically embarrassing, and then although the combined entity would have more cloud in a retail banking, it's hard to see how it would actually help the two banks. Interest rates are so low and the structure of the German banking system means that making money in the overbank German market is extraordinarily hard for a conventional private bank.
1: Indeed, because a lot of that overbanking stems from the public sector, is that right?
2: That's right. So German banking is comprised of three pillars. Private sector lenders such as Deutsche Bank, then there are the public sector, Sparkassen or savings banks, and also regional Landesbanken. And thirdly, there are, I mean, almost a thousand local cooperative banks, and the biggest of them is DZ Bank. All this taken together makes for a hugely overbanked banking sector.
1: And one in which the private sector must find it very hard to compete with uh, risk-free institutions.
2: That's right. The private sector is competing with banks that are not run according to normal business rules. They don't have the concern of private business to be basically profitable at all times.
1: Wendlin, where do you think all this speculation that you've described, the headlines about a Deutsche Commerz merger, is coming from? Is it the senior managements of the two banks, or is it outsiders, regulators, or the government?
2: I think it's more the government and regulators, because I think the senior management, there's a relatively new CEO called uh, Christian Seving, who is who's a deutsche bank life lifelong employee I think the, they would um, prefer Deutsche bank to remain independent but the government is is keen to save Deutsche Bank because it's a symbol of 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 German might and German cloud it, it was founded when Germany was unified and and they, are quite keen on saving what used to be a national champion, only it's a national champion that cannot pay its own way. So it's not really a champion at all. But I think there's a lot of political will to save the bank, not at all cost, but if possible, I think the government certainly would like Deutsche to survive.
1: I suppose one surprising thing to those of us who haven't been following this that closely is that German banks have been doing so badly at a time when the German economy was doing so well. So now that the outlook for the German economy itself looks much bleaker, presumably they are extremely worried.
2: Yes, that's right. So uh, Germany had a golden decade, basically. It's really done very well over the last 10 years. But the German model is very dependent on its exports, um, in particular exports to China, but also to big European countries such as France and Italy. Now, China is slowing down. France and Italy are in political turmoil. And the German economy has already suffered. There was even talk about a technical recession recently. So that, of course, has repercussions for banks that have been doing quite poorly anyway. And it will only get worse with the economy slowing down.
1: Wendelin, thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Simon. It was a pleasure.
1: And finally, The Economist recently played host to a summit called Investing for Impact in New York. One speaker was Sally Krawcheck, the chief executive of Elevest, a digital investment platform for women. She's also been called the most powerful woman on Wall Street and is the best-selling author of Own It, The Power of Women at Work. Vijay Vaitheeswaran, The Economist's U.S. business editor, spoke to her about how business can do good.
3: You were a titan of finance. You held senior jobs in in traditional finance. Uh, You were not known as a social impact person through your career, typically. Uh, Can you tell us uh, what got you interested indeed? Is it fair to say you were initially sceptical?
0: I was sceptical. I was dismissive. I did not believe that you could earn competitive returns while having a social impact. I thought... Let's keep those two things separate. Let's really focus on the competitive risk-adjusted returns in our investments and give the money away later. I've turned down meetings with impact investors. I, you know, If you had worked your way into my office when I was running Merrill or Smith-Barty and said, you know, I'm here to talk about social impact, I would have said, you know, you're a granola eater, tree hugger. Right. You know, so I was all the way with old Wall Street. And
3: was your notion that it's, it's just sort of a frivolous waste of time or something else?
0: Well, I think it was a bit of the you can do one thing well. Right? It's hard to walk and chew gum at the same time. You know, you can do one thing well. And I believed that the research I saw, being a research analyst by training and now a recovering research analyst, I believe the research that I saw at the time showed that you had to give up returns, and so I sort of stuck there. But things changed over time, and I have become passionate about gender lens investing and have become passionate about the belief that when we invest with an eye towards getting more money to women or more money in senior leadership teams, that the businesses do better, our economy does better, our society does better, our families do better, that there is a positive ripple effect that occurs that is meaningful and long-lasting. And the way I got there, quite honestly, was the financial crisis. As we were ending the financial crisis and I was giving consideration to joining the Obama administration, you know, I found myself making trips to the Hill, making trips to the White House, and, and being asked, "You with this you know, set of experiences, what were some of the causes of the financial crisis that we're not talking about? Everybody, well, we, there was too much leverage, and there was too much risk, and there was a blah, 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 sure. blah, everything we knew. But what I saw when I was at those tables that is really still not particularly talked about was groupthink. And that these were individuals around this table who were super smart. I mean, these folks don't come any smarter, but who had a set of experiences that paralleled each other. What was not available at the table was the breadth of experience and the breadth of perspectives that one gets from dramatic pause diversity. Cognitive diversity, which in turn comes from diversity of all kinds. So at that stage, I started to say, you know what, we just didn't have enough different points of view in the room, and nobody's talking about it. And then I sort of backed up and began to look at the research that says when you have greater, in this case, gender diversity, you get higher returns on equity, lower risk, greater innovation, greater client engagement, greater employee engagement. The power of diversity is so substantial that more diverse teams outperform smarter teams. And by the way, I get it. I'm an analyst, right? You know, maybe it's causation, maybe it's correlation, maybe it's coincidence, but it's a hell of a coincidence. And what is what backs it up is that homogeneous teams tend to overtrust each other. There is research that shows that guys and by the way, I love middle-aged white guys. I I've i been married to a couple of them. I think y'all are like these incredible, my husband is the whitest man you will ever meet. He's practically transparent. He's so white. Um, so this is not about excluding any group. It's about including another. But there's research that men tend to show off for each other in competitive situations. I think some of us can imagine that happening. And there's research that shows that there is a correlation between testosterone levels and poor risk-taking.
3: Right, with this set of insights, mm-hmm. empirical but also drawing on some of the academic research that I think a lot of us will be familiar with, you decided to make a bet. You decided to start a, a company. So tell us a little bit about your gender lens investing concept.
0: Elevest is an investing platform for women. You may say, as I did, women don't need their own investing platform. That's a crazy idea. Money is gender neutral, and um, that's sexist. And I I would never say that. I did. I did. I was like that. And that's so dumb. You know, what are we going to do? Like, oh, look at us, women investing together. Um, Except when you look at having a social impact, women today keep seventy-one cents out of every dollar in cash. Men keep tens of cents less. Therefore, before even talking about the gender pay gap. There's a gender investing gap that wasn't being spoken about a few years ago. Ellevest mm. was really the first one that said, what if instead of you know, just thinking about this as a marketing campaign where we try to get women to change, which hasn't worked for decades, how about we actually look at the underlying product and we change the underlying product? And yeah, and then in marketing, we engage them about topics they're most interested in. And the combination of getting more women to invest and getting more women to invest for impact, and again, much of which is gender lens, we're seeing this amazing ripple effect of women investing in women investing in women, which we believe you know, we're already beginning to see, though we're still small, the very powerful impact it can have by having women own money. Because the truth is we grew up you know, in a sort of puritanical society where sex was off limits to talk about no longer But money for women has been off-limits to talk about. And breaking through that and having women, you know, own their financial futures is a very powerful catalyst for this country.
1: That was Sally Korchek speaking to Vijay Vaitiswaran at The Economist's Investing for Impact Summit in New York. Well, that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. And if you like our journalism, why not try a subscription at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for £12 or $12. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist.